If you've got your Bibles with you, you'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. There will be a slide on the screen at some point with those verses on. I am going to talk about Haggai, but I am going to go to Ephesians 4 first. Verse 11 says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So why on earth am I taking us to Ephesians 4 when I'm supposed to be talking about Haggai? Well, the reason I've done that is because these verses capture the spirit and the story of Haggai and his fellow travelers. You see, they were involved in arguably one of the greatest rebuilding projects of all time. That's our intro video right there, okay? One of the greatest rebuilding projects of all time. The restoration of Jerusalem. But as we've already heard in this series, and if you've not already listened to Phil's talk last week, Sam's and Sarah's the week before, it, it, it's really important to get context and to get continuity. So if you haven't heard those talks, please go to the podcast, the website, and listen to them because they're brilliant. But what we've learned already in this series is that as magnificent as this rebuilding program was, it was merely a type, a prophetic shadow of the ultimate rebuilding program, which was going to be the original intention of God through creation, expressed through the church. So when we gave our lives to Christ, we unwittingly joined in the greatest building project there will ever be. That period of time is called the restoration period for a reason, because it was all about the restoration of Jerusalem. It's a period of church history that I love. I've walked with Haggai and his contemporaries for 30 years, and they have inspired me again and again not to give up on church. I have felt many times like giving up on church. The good thing is church has never given up on me. Because it's not always easy. Neither was this building project easy, as we've already heard. But whilst that was called the restoration period because of the restoration of Jerusalem, we are now in the ultimate restoration period. Acts 3.21 tells us that Jesus has to stay where he is until the restoration of all things. So there is a process unfolding right now in our day and age, and it's called the restoration of all things. And Jesus cannot return. It says heaven must receive him until 
the restoration of all things. Over the last few months, I've been really struggling with the state of the church in this world. Been really de- almost down about it. And the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear about two months ago. And as I was there thinking, oh, God, help us. What a mess. Holy Spirit whispered in my ear and he said, Jesus will have the church he paid for. And every time I start to struggle with, oh, God, we are so far away from where we need to be. That little voice says to me again and again, Jesus will have the church he paid for. You see, the church has been laughed at, spat at, pulled apart, torn apart, deconstructed, reconstructed, reformed, deformed, modernized, synthesized, upgraded, downgraded, degraded, diluted, refuted, marginalized and trivialized, despised and rejected, shattered and scattered, divided and derided. But the ecclesia is his idea, and despite what we see, there is no plan B. I wrote that this week. (laughs) Tony Walsh, look out, I'm coming for you. Because it's true, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. There is only plan A, and it is the church. And as for me, I am going to give what's the rest of my life, how long that is, to respecting and honoring and doing what I can to build church Recognizing that he's building it, not me. I'm just cooperating with him. These wonderful people, Haggai and his contemporaries, speak to us of the restoration, not just of all things, but two things in particular. The restoration of those who would lead the church and the restoration of those who would be the church. And I just want to spend the rest of my time today just talking about those two things, although it might turn out to be three. Prophetic license. You see, a very famous church leader said that the future of the church is in the hands of its leaders. And I went, ah, he's right. But actually, the future of the church is also in the lives of those who have decided not just to lead it, but to be it. And I want to inspire you today, if you're a church leader, be the best church leader you can be. But if you're not called to lead church, but you are called to be church, then be the best church you can be. That's the whole point of this story. The restoration of those who are called to lead church and the restoration of those who are called to be church. Ephesians 4 talks to us about maturity, about fullness, about growth, about us being equipped, about us all doing our jobs. And it's exactly what we see play out in the story of Haggai and his contemporaries. This is really a bit cheesy, but I can't find a better way to say it. But what Haggai and his contemporaries teach us is that teamwork makes the dream work. I'm sorry about that. That's like just so double Gloucester, it's not true. Somebody spoke to me, hallelujah, keep talking. Um, But also, dream work makes the team work. What have I just said? 
What I've said is task without vision is drudgery. Dream work makes the team work. Which is why when Phil keeps talking to us about what he's dreaming about, that has the potential to turn task from drudgery into delight. Because all of a sudden we understand our why. So teamwork makes the dream work, but dream work makes the team work. I apologize for the amount of cheese in this presentation. So, let me just talk about the restoration of those who are called to lead church. The stage of the story of Haggai is littered with really interesting people. There are at least five kings, three of whom get particularly mentioned, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. There's Zerubbabel, who led the first return with about 50,000 people. There's Joshua, the high priest, who accompanied him. There's Ezra, the teaching priest. There's Nehemiah, the strategic leader. There's Esther, the courageous young woman who didn't go back to Jerusalem. She stayed in exile, and good job she did. Because if Esther hadn't done what Esther had done, there would be no Ezra chapter 7. The Jews would have been wiped out at the end of chapter 6. So Esther had to play her part and stay where she was to save the entire nation. I haven't got time to talk about Esther. There's Haggai. Haggai's my favorite prophet. It's time. Get your priorities right. Get on with it. I'm with you. I'll bless you. You ain't seen anything yet. Done. Two chapters. And then there's Zechariah, who drives me crackers. I've seen four horses, and I've seen a golden lampstand. I've seen a man with a ruler. I've seen olive trees. I've seen four horns and four craftsmen. I've seen Joshua getting a new wardrobe. I've seen a scroll flying. I can imagine Haggai. Can you just think, like, are you done? Are you done? You know, four months and I'm out here, Zechariah is still busy seeing, like, vision number seven. And I can imagine Haggai, because that would be me, right? For goodness sake, what did you have for breakfast, right? But this beautiful lineup of the weird and the wonderful speak to us of the power of the diversity of team. And one of the reasons that these folks were so successful was they learned how to harness diversity of personality and of gift in an exceptional way. Because I suspect, actually, Haggai was not like me. Haggai was going on, wow, Zech, that's amazing. How do I get to see flying scrolls? Zechariah's over here going to Haggai, I wish I could be that short and to the point. How do you say it so succinctly, Haggai, right? And then there's Ezra and Nehemiah thinking, guys, will you get a move on? Because I've got a teaching program to build, and I just need you two to get your act together, right, and sort it out. Because Ezra was the teacher. I haven't got time to deconstruct the, the, that point in any detail, but I just want to talk about the role of the prophetic and talk, and talk to you about two passages in Ezra which have lived and breathed with me for 30 years when it comes to the prophetic. There are many paradigms in this world for the prophetic. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. This is mine, and it's in the Bible, so it must be right. Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2 says this. 
Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. That's a really healthy prophetic paradigm. Two points. These prophetic guys were with everybody, so they had their sleeves rolled up, and they were supporting them. They were not Ofsted. <laughs> Mentioned the O word. They were not there saying, that's not good enough, that bit of the wall, you're going to have to rebuild it. You know what I mean? The word of the Lord is, try harder, right? These prophets were with people. They weren't over here in some really weird zone. You know, they went up with the fairies, like, criticizing. They were with them, supporting them. And then in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, Ezra 6.14. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah and Saint Davido, they finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. You can tell I've read these verses a lot. I get all the names right. The elders were successful. The elders were prospering because of Haggai and Zechariah. There's this Old Testament paradigm that the kings are bad and the prophets do all the, the real ruling. That's why it was in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, government gets redeemed. So in the New Testament, it's not kings are bad and prophets are good. Everybody gets to be good. And the prophetic ministry here, these guys have worked out teamwork so well that whatever Haggai and Zechariah is doing, it's causing the leaders to prosper, to be successful. That doesn't mean it's without challenge. Haggai, you are building your own house when you should be building his. Okay, so it's not like it doesn't challenge, but the outcome of what we see from Haggai and his contemporaries is that they worked out how to do teamwork together. So what about a people who have learned to be the church's team? Well, there are two keys, really, which I think we've heard before, and those are found in Ezra and Haggai. So Ezra 1 verse 5 says this, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So if we're really going to be the church, we have to mobilize our hearts before we mobilize our hands. So often we go after our hands and really what we need to go after is our hearts. If you've got my heart, you've got the rest of me because I'm kind of connected. So what united this people group, this people group decided to be the church and the first thing that the Bible tells us about them is their hearts were moved. Haggai 1 verse 13 to 14 says this, Then Haggai the Lord's messenger gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. So not only 
to be church do we need to have our hearts moved, but we need to have our spirits stirred. You could argue that's just Hebrew parallelism, which is a posh way of saying, saying the same thing but differently. Either way, what characterized this group of people wasn't that they just had a bunch of enthusiastic leaders. If you notice, the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and all of the people who had decided to be the church. This people group consisted of Roughly by the time Ezra arrived, because Ezra brought another 3,000 people with him. Zerubbabel had already brought 50,000. So you're now probably talking about 55,000 people. There's a bit of a debate as to whether that's just men or men and women. But it's all the people. This people group had, the Bible calls them the remnant. And it says it consisted of family heads, elders, sons and daughters, priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants. But if you want a really just a beautiful story, read Nehemiah chapter 3. Because in Nehemiah chapter 3, the Bible attempts to list all of the different people who journeyed. And I just want to read you my favorite portion of Nehemiah chapter 3. This is going to be a challenge on pronunciation. It's a good job on Welsh. Uziel, son of Harariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Then Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining to this, Jediah, son of Harumah, made repairs opposite his house. Hattush, son of Hajabaniah, made repairs next to him. You're all on ten dogs, aren't you? Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashib, son of Piamoab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Tower of the Ovens, that sounds... Like maybe pizzas were on offer, I don't know, who knows. Shalom, son of Halawesh, ruler of half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. That would have been me. I didn't have any sons, I had three daughters, but they would definitely have helped me with my DIY, okay? I love this little section because it talks about goldsmiths and perfume makers, as well as rulers and governors, all rolling up their sleeves to build that part of the wall that was in front of them. Everybody, irrespective of their job title, leaning in to play their part. Why? Because their hearts had been moved and their spirits had been stirred. And none of them were saying, not my job. I'm going to, go, I'm going to finish by just giving you five milestones for this rebuilding project based on Haggai's story. And we'll get to that in a second and that will be me done. But before I don't, went to go on to talk about what is the work... Prophetically, what is the work based on the story of Haggai? Let me just reflect on this. What we have seen so far is a bunch of leaders who took up their responsibility to lead church, celebrated diversity, and worked out how to team together, irrespective of personality and gift mix, to get the job done. They might be in the 2%, who knows? But as important, there was a bunch of people, circa 55,000 of them, who had had their hearts stirred, moved, and their spirits stirred. And they had decided, you know what? Our job is just to be church. How refreshing and liberating and releasing is it not to worry about what my job role is, but just to be church? I might be a goldsmith or a perfume maker, but there's work to be done and I'm going to allow the Lord to move my heart and stir my spirit to repair my part of the wall. 
So what is this work? We talk about this rebuilding project, but I like to make things simple and clear. So like, we're off to work, we go, hi-ho, hi-ho, we're off to work, we go. And yeah, what, what are we doing? What is the work, right? And Haggai and his contemporaries beautifully and powerfully make this very clear. And there are five things. So this great rebuilding program I've talked about, there are five project milestones. So if you're a project manager out there, you will set up your milestones in Microsoft Project and off we go, right? Create all the tasks and then we can get the job done. So what are these five? And these are really critically important to us strategically now, okay? So what are they? There's a slide, you'll see them all. The first one is, there is land to be taken. The very first thing this people group did was return to the land that belonged to them. In other words, there is an inheritance for you personally and for us corporately to lay hold of. Paul said like this, I'm going to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. What is your inheritance personally? What is it that he is calling you to lay hold of? What's the land that you need to reoccupy as a person, as a family, as a couple? There's a returning to land. There's an inheritance for you and I, individually and corporately, for us to appropriate. They were in exile and they decided, no, that's not our inheritance. Our inheritance is not exile. We're going to return and we're going to occupy the land But it's really interesting that the first thing they didn't do is build the walls. I find this fascinating. I think this is prophetically really significant because you and I, I think, might decide there are no walls. We are not safe. Build the walls. But this people group, under the inspiration of their leaders, did something very interesting. The very first thing they did was they rebuilt the altar. Why? Because the altar is the place of consecration. Before we go and build the walls, which is about our identity in this world, I'll talk about walls in a minute, forget who we are for a minute. Remember whose we are. We belong to him. Inside them was this desire before they would give themselves to his work to give themselves to him. The Roman Catholic tradition says this. <clears throat> A Catholic theologian says, it's impossible to have God as your father without having the church as your mother. Everybody's going to go, ooh. I've made up a Protestant version of that, which is really dangerous to have the church as your mother if you haven't got God as your father. One of the reasons why church is so difficult is because we have not first entered through that place of giving ourselves to him before you give yourself to me. Why? Because he's perfect and I am not. So the moment you give yourself to me, and you're going to bump into a work in progress royally, let me tell you. The only way you can handle me is if you've given yourself first to him, which is rebuild the altar before you rebuild the walls. It's a beautiful image. What does that altar look like in your personal life? Where is the altar in your personal life? That place of, it's just you and him. 
and you giving yourself to him before you get busy for him. Because that'll kill you. Or you'll kill me. So please, find the altar. Then you can handle me. The third thing they did was they rebuilt the temple. Why? Because fundamental to the whole reason we exist is worship. We can focus a lot on we're here to, we're here to do lots of things. The do-to list is very long. But at the heart of the Old Testament church is this understanding that the centrality of our reason for being is worship. They rebuilt the temple. All the time they're doing this, their walls are down. They're exposed. But they're not worried about that because they understand that the reason they exist fundamentally is to give themselves to him and then give themselves to worship. I'm created first and foremost to, to be a worshiper. If I'm going to embrace what it is to be church, the first thing I'm going to be is a worshiper. We corporately gather fundamentally, primarily to worship. And we're getting better at it because we practice every week. But the corporate aspect of our relationship with God is only one part. There is something called our personal, 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 sorry, Sean Connery, personal devotion, our personal worship. So my, my, my plea and my, my view based on Haggai's and his contemporary story is that the importance of priority is before you, before you look out, look up. Worship him. Understand that the rebuilding program is about worship. And then we come to walls. Okay, we're feeling better now because we're on to the rebuilding of the walls, which is what Nehemiah and his crew did. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God, that we might declare the praises of him who have called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Ecclesia is his idea, and despite what you see, there is no plan B. I am fed up of the church being used as target practice for people who want to make it a laughingstock and a joke and irrelevant and culturally out of date or old-fashioned. My heart's plea to you would be, love the church like he loves it. Love yourself like he loves you and be unapologetic about being church. We have the opportunity as a community to reflect to the city and the world around us what it looks like to be church. It's an amazing opportunity. Please grasp it with all your might. And rebuilding the walls is about identity. It's about who we are. Who are we? It's not about fear. We're not trying to keep people out. Walls are just saying... This is who we are. We're owning our identity as the people of God. Be unapologetic about who you are. Just work out how do we, not just how do I, show up. That's challenging. And then finally, 
It didn't stop with the walls because Nehemiah was an apostolic leader. So he wasn't just interested in rebuilding the infrastructure of church. He said, no, 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 no. Now we need to go on a journey of cultural transformation. So Nehemiah and, and Ezra presided over the reformation of their way of life. And I think it's really powerful for us to land in a place where we understand our goal is not to be a service provider. Our goal is to reflect him in such a way that it's not just about revival, it's about reformation. If we stop short of reforming society and culture, then we have not fully reflected the story of Haggai and all of his contemporaries who showed us and modeled for us what it looked like to get your priorities right. And it ends with the reformation of society around us. I'm done. I'm more than done. Let me just pray for you.